Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time. Well, good morning. We're glad you could join us this morning. Uh, I was thinking this as I was preparing this week, uh, how small the world is, has seemed lately. Uh, just being able to experience some of the things that people uh, on the other side of the world are experiencing from different cultures, different uh, economic backgrounds, and it's, it's really just made the world seem a lot smaller. And I was thinking as I was preparing for this chapter that uh, there's something about solidarity. There's, there's something about everybody going through the same thing at the same time uh, that at least in general, that, that, that reminds us that we're not alone. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like my family has been, uh, you know, having church on Sunday mornings. And uh, there's something comforting about the fact that, that I know there are other parents with screaming kids, kids screaming in your face right now during the sermon, and they won't stop till it's over. No matter how many Cheez-Its that you shove in their mouths, it won't stop. I get it. And if you're one of those parents, you probably don't even realize I'm speaking yet. That's okay. You're going to be lucky if you just get a little nugget to take with you through the week. But there's something about solidarity, whether you realize it or not. We need that solidarity. We crave it to know that we're not alone. We want, we want somebody to celebrate with somebody that that will come and mourn alongside us and this passage today is it's it's important because it gives us the key to to uh that kind of solidarity or unity that we're looking for and there's two key questions to ask yourself as we're going through keep these two things in your head today as we're going through this passage what do i celebrate and what do i mourn what do I celebrate and what do I mourn? Philippians has, has shown us over and over the importance of unity. Uh, but if we want that unity, celebrating and suffering are, are inseparable. They are intricately intertwined. And we'll see it in this passage. So that's what we're looking at today. Celebrating and suffering for the sake of solidarity. Now, uh, these themes, they, they've been dominant in the book up to this point. And Paul starts this section by repeating himself. In verse 1, he, he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, this is only the halfway point in the letter. We've gone through two chapters. We've got two more. It's only halfway. So why is, why is he saying finally? You know, why? It's, it's like a preacher who says, in closing, when you know that he's got a whole nother half. He's only at halftime. We had a, we had a D now uh, years ago where we had a, we had a preacher who, who spoke for 45 minutes and said, I'm going to have the band get up here and, and close. And the band was up there. We timed it because we knew it was coming. The band was up there for another 45 minutes playing the same four chords because this guy would just, just had more in him. He was, he was ready to go. But he's not saying... He's not saying finally because it's the end of the letter, but because it's the end goal of our spiritual lives. He's drawing our attention to what he's about to say. It's it's as if he's saying, hey, everything I've said 
so far comes down to this. Here's the key. Rejoice in the Lord. Take joy in him. Delight in him. He says to write the same things again is no trouble to me. And it's a safeguard for you. See, he's willing to repeat himself over and over again. He, he says uh, again near the beginning of the next chapter, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. But now because he's, he's sort of repeating himself here and uh, drawing attention uh, to this, uh, I read back through the letter just looking for all the instances, all the times that he brings up this idea of, of rejoicing or joy. And, uh, and you see this theme of, of celebrating and suffering together. You see it throughout the book. So remember when he starts the book off and, and, uh, and he says that he prays with joy for them. And why? He says because of their participation with him. They're joining in. There's their solidarity with them in the work of the gospel. Because in his imprisonment, in his suffering, they were partakers of grace with him. They joined in and they entered into his suffering. So from the beginning of the letter, we see this idea of, of solidarity, of rejoicing together and suffering together. And you remember back in chapter 2, he said he, he poured himself out as a drink offering. He was emptying himself out, suffering on their behalf. And he says, he says even though that's the case, even though I'm being poured out right now, he says rejoice I rejoice and I share my joy with you. And then he says, you need to rejoice and share your joy with me. So solidarity, unity, it, it involves both rejoicing and suffering together. Like the unity of, uh, of a married couple, for better or for worse, both the ups and the downs. So the idea of unity through celebrating and suffering together, it dominates this book. And when he's saying at the beginning of chapter 3 to uh, rejoice in the Lord, it's not an empty uh, cheerleading pump me up. Uh, it's not a superficial happiness, like, like someone telling you to, to put on a, a mask, uh, to put on a smile over the pain. It's a, it's a call to find our true joy and contentment in Christ. Paul may be in a prison cell, but he's content. He's joyful in Christ. But now why does he say that, that reminding them to, to rejoice in the Lord is a, is a safeguard for them? How's it going to keep them safe? It's because there were people on their way who were coming to steal their joy. Paul's tone in this section, it, it, it shifts so dramatically that there are people that argue that it's an entirely different letter trying to be added into this letter. It's almost like your mom's voice when she's yelling at you, but then she picks up the phone and it's completely different. It's that kind of tone shift, that dramatic of, of a change. And he's extremely harsh in this section. And he actually gets downright vulgar. He gives the Philippians a warning about these Judaizers. And he says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, Beware of the false circumcision, or the mutilation would be another way to translate it. You know, I love a, a good bit of irony sprinkled in. And Paul, being a, a, a Jew himself, is, he's presenting this ironic reversal of everything the Jews would brag about in themselves. There's this ironic reversal that happens here. 
See, the Jews, they would set themselves apart from the Gentiles so that they could be, you know, ritually and ceremonially clean. And they would refer to the Gentiles as dogs. Well, Paul says, you watch out for the real dogs. The Jews bragged about their righteousness, so Paul says, you watch out for the evil workers. So beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the, the false circumcision. Now, circumcision is, is, uh, is a weird, awkward thing to try and translate from their culture into ours, okay? Because um, for the Jews in the Old Testament, it's a, it's a sign of the covenant. It was a sign in their flesh of solidarity, of unity, of being part of God's people. But that sign for us has been replaced in the New Testament with baptism. It's also a sign of solidarity. It's a uh, symbol of our identification with the, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. So it's solidarity with both his suffering and his joy. And these Judaizers are, are trying to argue that circumcision was still necessary. They're putting a burden on them. They're, they're saying that they need a little extra. And, and so Paul says, beware of the false circumcision. Literally, beware of the mutilators. Now, I, I want you to see the word play here because in this next verse, Paul says, we are the true circumcision. In a metaphorical sense, we're the true circumcision because we are being united with Christ. The word for, for true circumcision here, paratome, is a, is a, it's a compound word. It's, it's a preposition that means to cut around. And I told you Paul would be vulgar in this section. The word meaning false circumcision or mutilation it's, it's not peritome, but, but katatome. It means to cut down, to, to, to cut away from. And so it's a vulgar way to say these guys are just hacking away body parts. They're just hacking away. It doesn't do you any good, he's saying. It's suffering, but it's suffering for the sake of suffering. It's not for the sake of being united with Christ and identified with the community. But the true circumcision, Paul says, the true circumcision are the ones who worship in the Spirit of God and glory or boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Our confidence, our identity is in Jesus. It's not in any act of self-righteousness that we could perform, not in anything that we have to bring. And to, to emphasize the point even more, in case you had any doubts and we're still thinking you had something, maybe I've got a little bit of something that I can bring to the table. Paul's going to play the one-up guy for a minute. You know the, the one-up guy or the one-up gal in your life who has uh, always got to go the, the, the next step up. I was in a class recently and uh, everybody's going around and introducing themselves and telling just, uh, just an interesting fact. And this guy, he was, he was all excited about this recent encounter that he had with John Foreman, the singer of Switchfoot. He's like, I got to meet my idol. I got to meet John Foreman. And uh, this guy in the class was just kind of slinking back the whole time. He just kind of pipes up and he goes, I went surfing with him. 
Everybody in the class jumps on this guy because you know this guy. He's the one-up guy. Well, Paul's going to play this for uh, rhetorical effect here. He's going to play the one-up guy. He says, you want to try and do this on your own? I got you beat. Look at my list. I was circumcised when I was supposed to be. I was part of God's people, the Israelites. I was part of one of the only tribes who didn't rebel against David's kingdom, the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. You want to talk about the law? I was a Pharisee. Top dog. You want to talk about zeal? I persecuted the church. You want to talk about righteousness? Well, according to the law, I was blameless. But it all gets flipped on its head in the kingdom economy. It all gets turned onto its head. So Paul says this in verse 7. This is a key verse here. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So ask yourself at this point, what do I put stock in? What gives me value and security and peace? What makes me feel like I have an advantage or a leg up or a claim on God? What, what, what do I put on my resume that, that sets me apart? What do I consider gain? Well, Paul says the kingdom economy, it's, it's turned on its head. If you're trusting in those things, he's saying, they're not just worthless. It's not just going from 100 to zero. It's going against your account. It's becoming a liability, a debt against you if you're trusting in it to take you anywhere. They set you back. Just like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Dallas Willard phrases it like this. He says, blessed are the spiritual zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, deprived, and deficient, the spiritual beggars, those without a wisp of religion. Blessed are they when the kingdom of the heavens comes upon them. In the kingdom economy, whatever I bring before God as, as, as my, my gain and my advantage, if I trust it, if I, if I think that it gives me some kind of claim on God, then it becomes, for me, loss. Listen to the way the Net Bible says it. But these assets I have come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. More than that, I now regard all things as liabilities compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's his goal, to know Jesus intimately. He says, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things in a very literal way. Indeed, I regard them as dung that I may gain Christ. I told you, Paul's vulgar in this passage, and and some translations try to gloss over it and maybe call it rubbish. But skubala, it's a vulgar term in the Greek. It's a vulgar term that just means a big, heaping pile of dookie. The early church fathers, they'd gloss over this a lot too. They'd gloss over it because they, they, they saw it as an embarrassment. Paul's saying, I want you to be utterly embarrassed at anything that you would bring anything that you would put your trust in or that you think you could bring to the table. Spurgeon says here that Paul discounts his own righteousness like most men discount 
their sins. He's throwing them overboard. Why? Because cargo is less valuable on a sinking ship. If you've got expensive valuables on the ship and you enter into a storm and you're a sailor, you are going to be joyfully throwing everything overboard if it means saving your life. Cargo is less valuable on a sinking ship. And that's how Paul sees his own righteousness. What felt like an asset before was was only keeping him from accepting God's righteousness as a gift. So Paul, he he counts all things, uh, all the good things that he thought he could bring before God. He counts it all as dung. Why? He says that I may gain Christ and be found in him not because I have a righteousness derived from the law, but because I have the righteousness that comes by way of Christ's faithfulness. Your translation may say faith in Christ instead of Christ's faithfulness. And just so we don't get lost in the weeds, I'll just say this, it doesn't matter. Both of them have have an emphasis on Christ being the one that we're dependent on. So the Greek could go either way, but the emphasis in this chapter, is it's not, it's not on me being able to muster up more faith as if it was something else I could bring to the table. Even, even back in chapter 1, verse 29, Paul tells us that even the, the ability to believe was God's gracious gift to us. So either way, this all comes down to Christ's faithfulness, what he brings to the table. It's overwhelming and so what, why, why does Paul, why does, why does he count his old gains as loss? In verse 10 he says, that I may know him. Paul, Paul's desire to know Christ intimately, experientially. It's why he's given everything up, why he's counted it all as loss. Paul is, is throwing his, his own claim of righteousness overboard, like, like some overpriced, bougie accessory that was weighing him down. He takes everything that made him the top dog and realizes that if he held on to it, it would be detrimental to him. He says his goal is to know Christ. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. But we tend to stop before that last line. I mean, okay, I want to know Jesus better. Yes, I want the the resurrection power coursing through my veins. I want to be hopping up and down as part of this, this victory parade. But do I want to suffer? Do I want to enter into and fellowship with him in his sufferings? What would that even mean? Well, when you read verse 10, don't read it like a list. Paul's not saying, I want to know him, and I want the power of his resurrection, and I want the fellowship of his sufferings. He's, he's grammatically, he's saying this in a way that unpacks each statement. It expounds it further. And so he's saying his goal is to know him. But to know him means to experience the power of his resurrection. But the only way to experience the power of his resurrection is to enter into the fellowship 
of his sufferings. It's the only way. There's no celebrating with Christ uh, in his resurrection if you don't join him in his sufferings. You can't experience a resurrection unless you've experienced a death. You want union with Christ. To, to really know him experientially, that kind of solidarity as we've, as we've seen throughout Philippians means both celebrating and suffering, rejoicing and mourning. But what does it mean to know the fellowship of his sufferings? Here we find just another irony because his sufferings were not actually his to begin with. They were ours. He took on our suffering back in chapter 2. He entered into it when he didn't grasp at his status as God, but he let it go for a time to grab hold of us. He entered into our suffering. He fellowshiped in our sufferings. We're not only talking about his agony at the cross of Calvary, because part of this is obviously dying to ourselves, but we're not only talking about the agony of the cross at Calvary, we're also talking about the agony in the garden at Gethsemane. We're, we're, we're talking about his weeping at the tomb, at the graveside of his friend Lazarus. We're talking about the rejection of those that were closest to him. The, the mourning over the world that it's not the way that it's supposed to be. These are a huge piece of Christ's sufferings. And Romans 8 talks about the same thing. We have to suffer with him if we want to enter into glory with him. Just like in Romans 8, fellowshipping in his sufferings means groaning together, longing for that day of redemption when he will set everything right. So just like Christ stepped into our suffering, we join him and know him more fully when we follow his example and step into the sufferings of others. Just like how the Philippians weren't actually in prison with Paul, were they? But he says they partnered with him. They fellowshiped with him in it. They were partakers in it when they sent Epaphroditus, when they sent and, and met his needs. They were partakers in his suffering. One of the best images for me for this is, is when my wife had a miscarriage and we had friends come over who at that time had not experienced the specific pain and yet they cried with us, they wept with us. They just sat there and they helped shoulder the pain, even if it wasn't their own. So part of fellowshipping with him in his sufferings is mourning over our sin, mourning over the evil in the world, over the way that it's not the way it's supposed to be. And following his example of, of entering into the, the pain and the suffering of others. And as we do that, Paul says that He's conforming us to his death. It's a passive word. He's conforming. Just like back in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 6, when he's, <laughs> what he starts, he will finish. He's doing the work. He's conforming us to his death in order that we may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So if we really want to know Christ we need to let go of whatever we thought we had to bring. We need to fellowship in his, in his sufferings so that we can experience his resurrection power in our everyday 
lives so that we can know him intimately and rejoice in him. Paul says in verse 12, not that I've already obtained all this or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. It's that image from chapter two of grasping, laying hold. So ask yourself, what am I laying hold of? What am I holding on to? What gives me value and security and and peace? What makes me feel like I have an advantage or a leg up or claim on God? What is gain in my life? Because remember for Paul, he says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's all flipped. I'll tell you, for me, I hold on too tightly to the fact that I, I want to be seen as a, as a smart, competent leader. I hold on to that too tightly. To be honest, I didn't even want to get up here today because I, I knew as I was preparing for it, I knew this wasn't the best talk that I could give. I'm looking over my notes and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this passage and I'm going, it doesn't do it justice. And even though I'm pleading with Christ during the week for him to be the center and for him to to lead me in this, there's still a piece of me that just doesn't want to screw it up. I don't want to mess it up. I want to be seen as competent to some degree. Even if it's not the main factor, it's a factor. And as I was journaling this, I found so much comfort In Paul's next words. Philippians 3.13. Brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, I'm not there. I'm just running ahead like a madman hoping that you can follow me in my pursuit of Christ. I haven't laid hold of it yet, he says, but I press on because of his faithfulness, because of his obedience, because of his righteousness, not my own. All I got to (laughs) do, as if it were that easy, all I got to do is let go and lay hold of the one who laid hold of me the one who laid hold of you. And the proof that your value and your worth is in him is the fact that he let go to lay hold of you. He entered into our suffering and we enter into his by following his example, following the examples in in Philippians, dying to ourselves and entering into each other's sufferings by groaning with one another and all of creation, as as Romans 8 says, groaning over our sin, over our shortcomings. Look, if if you're suffering right now, the challenge from this verse today, the challenge from this passage is is to rejoice, is to take heart. It's to keep the image in your head, that hymn from from chapter two, keep it in your head. See him entering into your suffering and rejoice 
That's the challenge for those suffering today. For those who aren't suffering, at least to the degree that, that they could, our challenge, don't seek it out. Don't seek out the suffering. That'd be, that'd be just like the mutilators hacking away for the sake of their self-righteousness. So your challenge is this. Not only to die to yourself, but to feel the responsibility you have to enter into someone else's pain. As you bear one another's burdens, Paul says uh, in Galatians that you fulfill the law of Christ. You know him more deeply at an intimate, experiential level. Let's pray. God, that's our desire today. And if it's not, I pray that you would make it our desire today. That we may know you and the power of your resurrection and even the fellowship of your sufferings being conformed to your death in order that we may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Thank you, God, for who you are. Move in us. Draw us near. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.